The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Before we hear the preaching of God's Word, may we go before Him to pray. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do ask for Your help. We ask for Your help this hour because we are gathered together in Your presence where Christ is truly present with us, speaking to us through His Word. And so we do ask for Your Spirit to attend it. We ask that You would be with us, that we would have ears to hear because this is Your holy Word. You are speaking to us. We ask you would bless that word to us, that we may grow by it, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we may look more like Him, that you would deliver us more and more from our remaining sin, and grant to us that we would look more and more like Christ. Father, we do pray for our region. There really is a dearth of a solid teaching in our region, and so we do ask that you would raise up more men to plant churches, men who distinguish between the law and the gospel, men who know your word, who are holy, and who love you, and who are gentle and, and, and compassionate. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would raise up godly qualified men to bring your word, to hold the sound doctrine as we understand in our confession. We think of, of Pastor Brett Shaw and Bozeman. We pray that you would richly bless his ministry there. We ask that you would be most merciful to him and that you would raise up a, a body there to be a beacon of light in that area. And we pray for Pastor uh, Matt Davis in Helena. And we are grateful for a light there in Helena. We ask that you would continue to preserve them and that you would continue to sanctify them and grow them in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You would add to their numbers that uh, they would be faithful to speak of Christ to their neighbors, that the law and the gospel would continue to be well distinguished, and that a Christ would be honored and glorified. Father, we pray for a fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney as they look for a pastor after a tremendous scandal. But J.D. Hall, who disqualified himself and was excommunicated from that church, uh, we thank you, Father, that uh, this church is a part of helping them find a pastor. We do ask that you would be merciful to them and help them find a man. It's just difficult to find people. So we do ask, Father, that you would raise somebody up and send them uh, to that ministry. Again, a man of your choosing at the time of your choosing. But Father, we do know that they are sheep without a shepherd, and they are looking for a shepherd who will care for them, a shepherd who will who will bind up their wounds, uh, who will not uh, snuff out a smoldering wick, or somebody that uh, will not uh, snuff out a bruise or step on a bruised reed. We pray that you would bring to them a gentle shepherd, but a shepherd who, who knows your word, who has uh, unwavering convictions in your word, and who is able to administer your word in a way of grace and kindness. Uh, Father, we are thankful for the, the work that you are doing and uh, even getting a foundation established uh, in Fargo for uh, the sake of uh, church planting and, and theological education and 
um, particularly church planting and cooperation in this region. And we thank you for uh, the, the very generous uh, donor who have uh, given quite a bit of money for this cause. We pray that uh, it would be honoring to you and that uh, you would be able to cooperate with other churches for this sake. Father, we do thank you for that. I thank you for even, seems like, the, the, the beginning of a cooperative effort between many churches. And so, Father, thank you for that. And pray that you would richly bless that for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the truth, for sound doctrine. And uh, we pray that Christ would be exalted, that um, we would not forget about uh, our own region uh, that desperately needs the gospel. And I, Father, we can think that because it's America that people just know the gospel. And indeed, people do know about Jesus, but uh, certainly there's a lot of very hard issues with regards to forsaking uh, the law and the gospel distinction and putting people under the law and really the, the terrible fruit that comes out of that. And so we do pray, Father, for you to bring really a, a reviving of the gospel in our region. We pray, Father, that you would do this for Christ's sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we turn uh, to Esther 4, and I've already read that passage. And it's interesting uh, to consider some of the commentaries and some of the, the study Bibles on it that will talk about this passage and how to apply it. And one of the things they will say, one of the things I saw was common, which didn't surprise me, was you basically dare to be an Esther, where uh, you come across a defining moment in your life and you need to take a stand for God, that you make sure you take a stand for God and lay it all on line. Be like Esther in that. And that's not all bad. There are certainly uh, things we can learn from Esther's example. And doing the right thing, even when it's difficult, even when there's going to be sacrifices involved. Uh, we want to be people like that. Uh, however, let me suggest to you that the main focus of the story is not centered on us and the moral example that we need to follow. That's certainly there, and we need to follow that. But let me suggest to you that the main, emphasis on main, focus of the story is on somebody who laid down his life precisely because we are people who don't do that. We are people who, when we need to do what is right, we, always, we don't always do what's right. We don't always follow the Lord. We are people who utterly fail and who selfishly follow our own will. And so we need somebody who will lay down his life for us so that we may be forgiven of our failure to be like Esther, our failure to be like Christ. And praise be to God for the one who did, because it all fell on him to save an entire people, to save fallen sinners. And so from this story, uh, what we learn is two truths with regards to our salvation. And they are first, salvation did not come from us. And second, salvation all comes from the Savior. 
all from the Savior. So first, salvation does not come from us. We see in verse 1, when Mordecai learns of what happened, he goes out and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but if you remember, there's a decree issued by authority of the king to annihilate all the Jews. And so when Mordecai learns of this, and it seems like he also found some inside details about this, he goes out and he mourns, and he mourns in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, tearing one's clothes, crying with a loud and bitter cry, putting on sackcloth and ashes. And this grief was intense, and crying out with a loud and bitter cry. And we need to remember that this is not a fairy tale. Uh, this is real history. And imagine if you just received a report that mass genocide is going to be committed against all Christians. It's happened in the past. But if you think about it, you step into Mordecai's shoes. You, your family, your loved ones, your children are going to be mercilessly slaughtered for evil purposes. That would be a hard pill to swallow. Just imagine even in how we would react if we learn of a terminal illness, uh, either for ourselves or for a loved one. Maybe if we learn of a terminal illness for one of our children. Imagine the grief we would have if we learned of that. So what we see here is somewhat similar, except it's a terminal illness, if you will, for an entire people. And that's the type of grief that Mordecai is facing. And all the Jews are weeping and and mourning, verse 3. Mordecai uh, went as far as he could go towards the king's palace, because verse uh, 2 says no one was allowed to go into the, the, the king's gate, that is the large building at the entrance of his palace, wearing sackcloth that morning. And so he went as far as he could. And it seems like he went as far as he could in order to get Esther's attention, which he successfully does. And verse 4 says that Esther's assistants alert her to this. And so she sends somebody to try to not comfort him necessarily, but to get him to stop expressing his grief. She gave him a change of clothing as if he didn't have other clothing. Probably because she was concerned that she he was mourning uh, close to the presence of the king. But I think just as an application point, I think what this reveals is our tendency. Rather than mourning with those who mourn and try to figure out well, what's, what's, what's your grief, we do have a tendency to kind of just get them to stop. Uh, maybe we feel awkward as somebody's crying, and so we, we try to just get them to stop crying. Oh, don't cry. It'll be okay. Uh, or maybe because we don't want to bear burdens. Uh, we already feel a heavy enough burden as it is, and so to have to bear somebody else's burden uh, feels like we are unable to do. We can't carry anymore. Or we just like a happy environment, and we want everyone else around us to be happy. And so we want to quickly return to our happy environment. Stop being sad. Or it could be that we don't know how to sympathize because we've been under the ministry of the law. The law shows no mercy. And so we who are under the law are not accustomed 
to showing mercy either, showing grace. And in line with this, we tend to think that the person is just being over dramatic, uh, unreasonable. Yeah, I've had to deal with worse. You're fine. Um, not showing sympathy. Whatever the case may be, we are commanded to mourn with those who mourn. This requires us to at least first understand why the person is mourning. Why are they going through what they are going through rather than just assuming that they're being unreasonable or trying to get them to stop grieving? And if we find that they are being unreasonable, we can deal with it at the appropriate time. But we must be gentle and them being unreasonable should not be our first assumption. Well, after Esther realizes that she could not get Mordecai to stop expressing his grief, uh, she does the right thing and inquires into it in verse 5. Because she's royalty, she could not really communicate with the common people face to face unless it was prearranged. So she sends one of her eunuchs to go and talk uh, with Mordecai, and also she couldn't interact with somebody who was uh, covered in sackcloth and ashes that would be beneath the dignity of royalty. And so she sends Hathak, and he reports uh, what Mordecai said uh, to him, including the clear details of all that's happened, and even a document that says, here is what he is doing. Now, as I mentioned, this does teach us about our salvation. Why do I say that? Well, remember that Exodus, and in Exodus the people were under a harsh taskmaster. They were under the power of their enemies. Under the sentence of death, hostile enemies had them under their thumb. And we saw there that the answer was God to redeem them. God to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. That is the biblical picture of redemption. That points to our spiritual redemption. And that's what we see here. Once again, God's people are under the sentence of death, under the harsh and cruel treatment of the enemy, of Haman, who's in the line of the serpent, who's called the enemy of the Jews. And so we get a picture here of our salvation. And the fact that God's people are under the power of the enemy and needing deliverance, and that God is going to bring that deliverance, is again a picture of our salvation. And so what do we learn about our salvation here? Well, first we learn about our helpless condition. Notice how Mordecai responded. Mordecai did not rally up the troops. Mordecai did not say, we need to take matters into our own hands and we need to go fight the enemy. Just like with Israel and Egypt, he realized that he and his people were helpless and could not deliver themselves. And what this shows us is that we are truly helpless to deliver ourselves from greater enemies, our spiritual enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And we are not called to muster ourselves up, find the strength to do better, do what we can to defeat our sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat our enemies. Rather, we need to recognize that we are helpless against our enemies. And deliverance does not come from within us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from a Savior. And so salvation starts 
by a recognition of our plight so that we look to the true deliverer. And the second is this recognition leads to mourning. When Mordecai considered his plight under the power of the enemy, the sentence of death, and that he could not deliver himself or the people, he mourned greatly. And while there are differences, yet here we see a picture of what our response should be when we realize the greatness of our sin and misery. Uh, We too, by nature, are under the power of hostile enemies. We too, by nature, are under the sentence of death. A much worse death. The eternal death penalty. Eternity in hell. This sentence came about because of the first Adam's sin, and also because of our sin. If there's ever a time to mourn, it's because of the plight of our sin and misery that we have brought ourselves under. If there's anything that should cause us to mourn, it should be over our sin. And yet, our Savior reminds us, blessed are those who mourn. That they will be comforted. That is, blessed are those who mourn over the greatness of their sin and misery because there's a Savior who will comfort them. The third thing we learn from Mordecai here is that we must look to a Savior to deliver us. We cannot deliver ourselves, true, but we must look to somebody who can deliver us. And in verse 8, Mordecai asked Esther to go to the king to plead his favor in order to save all the people. He saw her as the only one who could save all the people. But it would come at a cost. And this brings us to the second truth regarding our salvation. That is, salvation comes all from the Savior. Another way of putting it is the salvation of all rests on one. Esther responds to Mordecai's plea in verse 11. All the king's servants and all and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, this is something that is kind of alien and foreign to us. But in the ancient Near East, a sure way to die was entering the presence of a king where you were not first invited. Uh, Basically, if Esther entered the king's presence, the only legitimate expectation she had was death. Even as the queen, I know it's hard for us to, to fathom that, but that's the way it was in ancient Near Eastern custom. And I don't think we really feel the weight of this because we know the end of the story. And it's an interesting story to us. But these are real people, real characters in real history who don't know the outcome. And so she knows that it's very likely she's going to face death for doing this. Um, From Esther's perspective, she was sealing her death. And this is what 
Esther is facing. Another important thing to note is that she had not been called by the king for the past 30 days. Don't gloss over that. That's an important note. Uh, it's a significant detail. Uh, she's the queen, but the king hasn't called her for 30 days, for a month now. At the beginning, the king was thrilled with her. Couldn't be more thrilled. But now, he hasn't called her for about a month. It appears that the honeymoon phase is over. So, her still having favor with the king is in question because she hasn't been called for a month. Does he even still want her? And going into his presence to find out when he hasn't called her for a month now uh, is a very risky way to find out. However, Mordecai responds in verses 13 through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, re relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai tells Esther, your inaction does not guarantee your safety. Just because you are the queen in the palace does not mean that you won't be found out. You won't be found out to be a Jew and that you too won't be slaughtered. Besides, deliverance will come from somewhere else, Mordecai says. And Mordecai, by saying this, demonstrates his belief in the promise of God. That salvation would come through the Jews, so it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for his promise to to not come to fruition. And so deliverance would come for them. It's the same faith that Abraham expressed. Remember when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son? The one through whom the promise would come? Well, if he kills him, how would he have offspring to bring about the promise? Well, Abraham surmised, well, God just, might, just must raise him from the dead. The promise is going to come either way. And this is Mordecai's faith here. Either way, deliverance is going to come, if not from you, Esther, from, from another quarter. However, Mordecai is convinced that all of them would die in, in Susa, the capital. Even though deliverance would come for some of the Jews, Mordecai says, we're not going to be spared. You, and your fa you are going to die. Your father's house is uh, going to die. That means that there's not going to be an immediate family line that would be honored. And so Mordecai tells Esther that she must act. And says that perhaps she has come to be queen, even through dark circumstances, if you, if you remember the story from the, the past. But perhaps she has become queen for such a time as this, for this purpose, for saving the people. Here, Mordecai demonstrates his belief in God's sovereignty, even though God's name is not even mentioned explicitly in this book. And so Esther responds in verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days or nights, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, 
I perish. So Esther decides to go ahead and lay down her life for the sake of her people. She asks for a fast to be held for three days. And fasting is a very focused time of prayer, usually when there's an urgent or important matter. Uh, we see it in the New Testament, for example, when the, the church is deciding on uh, choosing and installing an officer in the church. But here, this is seeking the Lord for Esther's life, that she would not die when she came into the king's presence, knowing that she was about ready to commit a capital offense. However, she was willing to die. She said, if I perish, I perish. So Esther is going to lay down her life for the salvation of her people. And what do we learn about our salvation from this? Well, first we see that salvation for all falls on one. The salvation of all laid squarely on Esther's shoulder. And we see this in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The salvation of all fell on Him alone. It was not shared by any. It was all on Him, even being forsaken and abandoned by His disciples. And unlike Esther, who is a type of Christ, salvation would not come from any place if Christ did not lay down His life. If Christ did not lay down His life for us, if He called on the angels to deliver Him, if He did not drink the cup of God's wrath, there would be no salvation for us. But praise be to God that Christ, according to God's eternal decree and plan, went to the cross and, and laid down His life for us. Second, in order for our salvation to be accomplished, the Savior would have to come under the sentence of death. In order for Esther's people to be saved, she would have to at least the face the possibility of death, come under the penalty of death. But with our Lord Jesus Christ, in order for us to be saved, He had to come under the penalty of of death, and there was no if I perish, I perish. It was he went to the cross to face our death penalty, to perish, but to rise again. He would be put, put to death in a most brutal way by a pagan ruler, and he would face a wrath greater than any wrath that this pagan king, Ahasuerus, could give. He faced the wrath of the eternal King, God Almighty, that we may be forever saved from our sins. Third, salvation comes from the Savior humbling Himself to identify with His people's suffering. We see that Esther would have to forsake her royal comforts and humble herself to identify with her people. And this is not something you see with royalty. You With royalty... You had to stay away from the people suffering. And while she didn't go out to be with them like our Lord Jesus Christ did in putting on our very own flesh, she would have to spill the beans to the king that it was her people that needed to be saved, thus exposing herself to the, the scrutiny of 
identifying herself as a true Jew. And in this, she opened herself to the suffering and the same shame and contempt of her people. And she also shared in their sufferings by fasting with them for three days, joining them in their distress and hardships. But this is just a small picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ did, who is eternal God, assuming our humanity, identifying Himself with us in our shame, sharing in our nature, becoming like us in every way except for sin, becoming a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and death, being stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And yet, Isaiah says, the reason why he did that is because he was bearing our curse. He was suffering our shame. He was carrying our, our sorrows. He was shouldering our curse. His whole life of suffering is because he was suffering for our sake. Therefore, not only did he save us forever by his suffering, He is also able to sympathize with our trials, with our sorrows, and with our pain. Fourth, salvation has to come from someone who has access to the king. The reason why Esther was the one who was able to be the savior is because she had special access to the king. Granted, she risked her life by coming into the presence of the king. But nevertheless, she was the one who was able to because she had this special access to the presence of the king. Just an interesting note. Isn't it interesting to consider the the dilemma that Queen Esther's facing versus that of Queen Vashti? Queen Vashti suffered because she refused to come into the presence of the king. Queen Esther is suffering or going to suffer, even though we know the rest of the story, but she doesn't know, for coming into the presence of the kings. We see that that reversal there. Nevertheless, the one person who could save the people had access to the presence of the king. And this reveals something about our own Savior. He's the one who is in the bosom of the Father, as John 1.18 says. No one has seen God at any time except for him who, as John 1 says, was with God in the beginning, face to face with God in the beginning. And He put on our flesh that He might bring us to God. And He offered up His sacrifice in the presence of God by the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews 9 says. And we have somebody right now in the presence of God in a special place, the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, who is interceding for us. You fall into sin? You struggle with sin? Well, guess what? We have an advocate. And where is that advocate? With the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And so, beloved, we learn of our need of our Savior. We learn about our Savior from this passage. We are not able to save ourselves. We are not able to rally up the troops and fight the enemy to deliver ourselves from our sin, to be accepted by God, to come out from underneath the sentence of death. We are helpless. We are under the sentence of death. We are under the power 
of an enemy that we do not have the power to fight. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And they shall be comforted because there is a Savior. The salvation of all fell upon Him. He came under the sentence of death for us to free us from it. He assumed our nature, identifying with us our sorrows, carrying our griefs, facing our shame, facing our sentence of death to deliver us from it and to deliver us from our enemies, defeated them in full, rising from the dead. And now we do have victory over our enemies. You're fighting your sin. You feel like it is a vain battle. Seems like sometimes sin gets the upper hand. Know and remember that though you struggle, though you may lose some battles, know that you do have power over your sin because of your union with Christ. Sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because you are no longer under the condemnation of the law. You are under grace. You have grace upon grace in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sits at God's right hand, has, who has given us bold and confident access to Him, to His throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And so may we praise God for the true and better Esther, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us by laying down His life for us, that we may eternally live in the presence of the true and everlasting King. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to, again, pay attention to what we have heard, to delight in the Savior. Draw our hearts to Him, to love and adore Him for all that He has done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.